turn the mic on to cough in your ear, so I'm trying not to do that. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the eighth chapter of Acts. I did not intend several months ago, as you know, I've been um, just trying to minister and where the Lord has been dealing with my heart. I really believe that that is the only place that we can minister. Um, it's easy to regurgitate what you hear, but I think that the, the word of God that needs to go forth has to be from our heart. So I pre- I've appreciated that for all these years. That my dad has labored so long just to share the revelation of Christ that God is working in his heart. I believe that's the truest form of the gospel. I don't think the gospel is about trying to piece together words and cute phrases and things that make people astounded. I think the gospel sometimes leaves people in silence. I think the true word of God hits our hearts and it's got to come from our hearts. So I set out several months ago rereading the book of Acts and I have continued to reread it and think I'm moving on and the Lord just puts more things in my heart, um, which is interesting because I love to focus on the, on the Christology. I love to focus on who Jesus is, but I see the book of Acts, some things we've been Dad, I know, has kind of challenged us to do this, and um, I've been praying in this way. I know he has too, that we want to be what he intended his church to be. Amen? Amen. We agree that's what we're trying to be in this body. We're not trying to be what every other church is. We're not here to criticize what every other church is. really is irrelevant. We're trying to be that. The book of Acts is the record of what's going on in the early church, so I think we see, see some things. And recently... I have been encouraged to see some things in a different light. So I want to pick up on this scripture that I read last week, and I want to continue this thought. Or not last week, but last time I spoke. Brother Nathan spoke last week. And so um, two weeks ago, I spoke um, out of this passage, and this, still, this thought still needs to continue, I believe. The Lord put some more things here for me. So verse 36, And as they, were, as they went their way, They came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want you to look to chapter 10 now. We're going to skip over Paul, Saul's conversion to becoming Paul. And the first verse of chapter 10 I want to read, am I ringing a little bit out there? Is it okay? Not too loud? Okay. Um, first verse of chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea named called Cornelius, a centurion, the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour or clearly about the ninth hour of the day, the angel of God coming unto him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he had looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thy alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. And I want to read the 47th verse of this chapter. Let's look at the 46th. Verse, for they heard them all speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can any man forbid water 
that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as we have. Lord, I ask you, God, that you would help me to deliver what you have put in my heart. I don't have anything to share tonight. I have nothing that will, that will minister, Lord, but your spirit does. And so I just pray that you would move in our midst, help us to understand what you want us to know and cause us to grow by it, Jesus. And we give you the praise and everybody say amen. I'm going to turn it down just a, just a hair. It feels just a little ringy. So let me slip it down a notch here. That way we're not booming too much. So um, I believe the emphasis of the book of Acts is overlooked or maybe a better phrase would be that it's lost in translation. We've heard that term. Things get lost in translation. Um, I, I know that when I was preaching um, down in Mexico with Uncle Skip at the Bible school, uh, did that a couple of churches, and what I was trying to say, what cliches and which things would kind of make sense to us in English didn't always translate into Spanish. Their phrases and their, the way they would say things can be lost just because we talk differently. And so sometimes I think it's difficult. I don't mean to, to insult any translator or to say that I could do better, but I just think there's some things that possibly have been lost to the ages because of how we have viewed the book of Acts. I've recently been studying some thoughts, and it's really further helped me to, to see something quite different than what I've always believed the book of Acts to be. And to help me understand what I think Luke was trying to show uh, us in his account of the early church, it's interesting because we know that Luke was not one of the disciples, but he was a physician, and it, he felt moved and inspired, we would agree, inspired by the Spirit of God to write what he had gathered. Luke seems to me to be one who is gathering from a studious perspective. He's, he, being that he didn't experience it, he couldn't be writing from firsthand experience. But what he, I would kind of look at him as though a lawyer who is making a rock-solid case for some subject. So when we look at the book of Luke, it is written from that perspective. Not that he was there, but John has a first-hand perspective, and Matthew and Mark have first-hand perspectives, and they see things a little differently. But Luke is not going to take one person's account, likely, right? Because he is looking and trying to make sure what he is writing is correct. So he has an interesting perspective, and maybe not in any sense to diminish any of the other Gospels or, the, or other writers of the New Testament, but possibly Luke may have the least biased perspective within the New Testament writers because he is simply trying to compile the things that Jesus did and the function that he intended to accomplish in his church. That's what he's seeking to do. So he has no ulterior motive and he has no reason to write the one that Jesus loved laid his head on Jesus' chest because he wasn't that guy. So you just have a little different perspective. I, I wanted to set that up. The book of Acts itself, and I don't, I'm not trying to give you so much of a historical perspective, but I think it is important to understand that the book of Acts itself 
Many have tried to call this the gospel of the Holy Spirit. The, the account of, this, of the Holy Ghost. And then they will say, we are the 29th chapter of Acts. In fact, if I remember correctly, before my time, there was a group of singers called the 20, Acts 29, or the 29th chapter of Acts, I think. Around that weird hippie folk music thing that was going on. But, um, so some have tried to call this Acts, which we um, see, you know, the, the title being something different, but have tried to call it the, the gospel of the Holy Ghost. Well, obviously, these things which were happening were inspired by and carried out by the Spirit of God. That's clear and obvious, and we would make no argument with that. Luke was more concerned with defending, uh, with defending the Spirit because the Spirit was not the point of controversy. There was no question that, that the uh, Spirit of God was the function of the early church. So Luke was not as consumed with trying to defend that it was the Spirit of God who was doing this as much as he was trying to recognize that the controversy of the early church was about Jesus. The controversy of the early church was not about the move of the Spirit of God. There is something that happens, and I have not yet dove into this enough where I want to preach it, but I want you to think about it. In the first six chapters of the book of Acts, there are a large group of Jews that are being converted and they have no problem with Christianity per se. They are still Jews and we see 3,000, for example, on the day of Pentecost. Large groups are coming to knowledge of Christianity, of, of Christ. And they're okay with it. But then there is a shift at Stephen. I don't know if you've recognized this. And there becomes a huge movement back away from Christianity. They are living side by side. In fact, we, we can see Peter and John are going to the temple when they see the man, they say, silver and gold have I none. They're accepted in the temple still, right? That makes sense? But then something happens in about Acts 6 where this is no longer acceptable. What's... What's happening now is they're being kicked out of the synagogues. In fact, they ultimately are driven out of Jerusalem altogether, which is why Philip lands in Samaria and preaches to a eunuch from Ethiopia. What is the transition? It's not just... They have no problem, in my opinion, with believing in some capacity what Jesus might be. They don't have a huge problem with seeing him as some sort of a martyr. But there is an issue when Stephen begins to identify who this Jesus is. This is the controversy that happens. The idea that God would come and speak to the Jews and minister to the Jews and people should, can, should repent has been going on for years. But something happens at Stephen that not only causes them to stone him but the result, in my opinion, of Stephen's message influences a young man named Saul who stands there holding the coats that we find in, in uh, chapter 8. 
He is so upset about Stephen's message that he begins to ravage the Christian church. Something's changed. Something has shifted. And the controversy is not over whether God's Spirit moves among the Jews. The controversy is not over whether God's Spirit moves among the early church. The controversy is over who Jesus is. It's the dividing line of the early church. And I dare say, if you want to get a controversy going on in the church today, start identifying who Jesus is. All the religious are going to come out of the woodwork and those who would fellowship with you no longer will and they will kick you out of the synagogues and out of the temples and they will think they're doing God a service when they drive you from the land. Why? Not because you became a Christian. It's not the issue. Because you recognize Jesus for who he is. So this is the driving force. This is the perspective of Luke. You understand what I'm saying? He's writing this, and when you begin to read the book of Acts from this perspective, I said this before, it is amazing to me that we find Luke, he leaves off the story. Anybody want to know what happened to Barnabas? Anybody want to know what happened to Philip? Philip preached to the eunuch, and he continued preaching on in Caesarea. And what? What what happened? Why doesn't Luke continue? Because Luke is not concerned with giving a historical account of the early apostles. And really, he's not even just concerned with giving a historical account of the early church. There's something quite different that I believe he's trying to show, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Luke recognizes that the controversy in the early days of the church is about who Jesus was. His actions, his intentions, his character, and his identity. This becomes controversial. Just believing in Jesus is not controversial. Feeling bad because he was crucified and saying, well, I want to take on some of his teachings. To say that a rabbi was killed, well, they killed the prophets all the time. (laughs) The Jews killed the prophets all the time. So to have a certain affinity for Jesus was not the issue. But when they started identifying who he was, therefore, Luke made effort to trace back to God. In Jesus, the risen Christ. Or uh, even though the Holy Spirit had uh, the, the very ideas for which men were fighting for. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to trace in Jesus, the risen Christ, through the work of the Spirit of God, that this is what the early church is standing on. This is what the early church is trying to defend. One quick uh, further textual proof for this focus in Acts is that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned but one time in the last eight chapters from, from Acts 21.11 all the way to Acts 28.31. The Holy Spirit is mentioned one time and that in reference to a passage in Isaiah. It would be hard and possible for us to say that, that Luke's focus was on the work of the Holy Ghost when he doesn't even make mention of him in the last eight chapters except once, yet 20 times he refers to Jesus and Lord in those same passages. The emphasis of Luke's writing is to reveal who Jesus is. When reading the book of Acts, if you read it 
without theological predisposition, you will never be in doubt that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. The very name itself, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, this came along in like the second century. I think Tertullian started quoting it as this way. And anybody ever wonder where you got the... I, when I was little, I thought it was A-X or A-X-E. The Acts, I don't know why. <laughs> I just remember thinking that. Where do we get the term Acts? A-C-T-S. Well, it came along a few centuries later. Certainly Luke didn't title it Acts. Um, and they associated this title to be the Acts of the Apostles. And that title itself is misleading. It supposes that Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote this book so that we could know what the apostles did in the early church. But I don't think this was his intention, as I've already said. I think that, that it is very clear, and the very fact that he points out some of the major flaws of the apostles, that if... I was writing the book of Acts, I would have left out. If I'm trying to report what great men the apostles are, I would not have included some of the things that we see in the book of Acts, right? When you write my epitaph, hopefully you don't put on my tombstone my failures. And Luke records them. Why? Because his emphasis Show something. I don't think he's trying to beat them up, but I think that Luke is trying to show that it isn't about the apostles. It is about the triumph of the Spirit of God to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ. Despite the flaws found in the apostles. Despite the mishaps despite the prejudices that these men had, the gospel was carried to the nations because it was commissioned by the Lord himself. So God is using men who are not perfect. And despite their individual hiccups, these apostles were totally committed to the preaching of the gospel and undoubtedly committed even to death that the message of Christ must be preached. The reason why I emphasize this, and I've been saying this for weeks, please understand me, I think you do. I am not trying to demean the, the original apostles in no sense. I would say they are the greatest men to maybe ever walk the planet. Certainly much more holy and, and godly than me. But there is included in this text their failures because it is important for us to understand that the gospel is not carried by perfect men. The gospel is carried by hungry men. The gospel is carried by devoted men and women. The gospel is carried by people who are passionate concerning Christ. But it is not carried by people who are without flaw. And I think that we misunderstand that. 
Has anybody been guilty of that? Has anybody looked at these guys and you go, oh my goodness, I mean, who am I to preach the gospel? And that is true. What is man that thou art mindful of us? But I can tell you that as far as I know, and you might have a secret we don't know, but none of you have murdered anybody in the name of the Lord. Yeah, we look at the apostle and we say, what a great man he is. He is a great man because of his zeal for Christ, not because of his perfect and, and impeccable character beyond any scrutiny or judgment. And I want to emphasize that because what makes them different from us is important. I don't see these revelations concerning their failures and their attitudes that were not right as reasons to malign or distrust them. In fact, I see quite the opposite. I see in them that they were men which loved the Lord so deeply that he used them to carry his gospel despite their flaws while he was perfecting himself in them. I'm not a finished work, I hope. I hope that what still remains in me that needs to be changed, that God doesn't have to get me to the end before he can use me. I hope that before I'm some purpose to the kingdom, I don't have to arrive at a place where I never think a wrong thought or never possibly have a bad attitude or never get aggravated when the dog that she barks every single time that somebody comes to my door. I hope that I don't have to get to that point before God says, okay, because then it becomes about me. Now, again, we're all home folk, and I know you understand what I'm saying. I'm not excusing moral failure. I'm not suggesting that God says it doesn't matter how we live our lives. That's not my point. I'm literally not talking about those sins that are obvious because I think before we could ever speak the gospel, we have to resolve those issues but there are some character flaws in us that God still has to work out of us. There's some things you think that are just plumb wrong. They're just wrong from the very outset and we defend them and we think we're right and I can give you examples. All we have to do is look at Acts 10, what we're going to read, and we can see that Peter is 100% wrong about how he sees Gentile people. Thousands are coming to know Christ because of his message. Is it okay? No, because he's going to be confronted and God's going to work it out of him. But God is going to, in the process of working this out, and what we see in Peter, what separates these men? I wrote this down. What makes them so different from us is not that they were perfect men, but that they were willing to change when confronted by the Spirit of God. That's what separates them from most of us. We want to get to the point where we no longer need to be changed. But I'm going to tell you that the rest of your life, you're going to need to be changed. The very character and the fiber of your being. You can be separated from sin. God, God can cleanse you and make you right. And his spirit leads you and guides you. But the problem is oftentimes that self-righteousness results in me thinking that because I would stand up and see 3,000 people come to the Lord on the first time I ever preach his gospel, that I must have a rubber stamp on my life that how I think and what I'm doing is okay. 
Who, do, who wouldn't feel that way among you? Should you stand up here tonight and begin to preach the gospel and the Asbury revival happens and people, thousands of people are flocking and we have to knock the walls out and people are just constant. Would you not take that as a stamp of approval upon your life and all of your prejudices and all of your mishaps and your character flaws, immediately you say, you know what? God is good with where I'm at. That's what we would do. But what God is understanding and what God already knows is that it is not the perfection of us that he is looking for. It's the willingness. What you are saying. I have no... I have no precious pigs. I have no golden calves. There is nothing in my life that is untouchable. If you need to change this in me, then change it in me. I'm willing to let it go. I'm operating in what I know. Peter is a mighty man of God. And he is full of prejudice. He is absolutely full of prejudice. I'm not excusing racism. I think racism is, is an awful thing. I'm not suggesting that people who are racist are hearing the spirit of the... I'm not trying to make a case for that. But what I am suggesting to you is Peter was raised a certain way and he was in a process of being brought out of that mindset and it took some time in his life. But Peter was committed to Christ more than he was committed to the things that he believed. And I think this is what separates them from us. This willingness made them useful. This willing them, willingness made them to mature. And this willingness is what is making them holy. Their holiness didn't make them holy. Their acting a certain way, doing a certain thing, separating from certain things did not make them holy. The submission to the Spirit of God is what makes you holy. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. It is the response to the Word of God that makes you holy. It is not what you put on. It's not what you take in your mouth. It's not, it's not what, you, what you surround yourself with. Now, again... We can go all kinds of weird ways. I'm not even going to cover it because you understand what I'm saying. But it is not that we live in a monastery that makes us holy. It's our submission to the voice of the Lord that makes us holy. The major theme here in the book of Acts is the triumph of the gospel of Christ. As it breaks down the prejudices and the barriers of religion and race and nationalism. I want to use these two accounts tonight that we read in the book of Acts in 8 and 10 to further evidence what I'm trying to express to you tonight. Let's contrast the joy in Philip and the reluctance in Peter as they encounter the gospel being delivered to the Gentiles. I'm not going to take a bunch of time because we covered Philip two weeks ago and his joy and his willingness and his readiness to respond, but I do want to revisit it for a second because Luke takes his time to give us details. I don't know if you picked it up, 
But in Acts 10 there, in early verses, it says, and it was, a, it was evident at the ninth hour. Why in the world would it matter what time it was? Anybody ever thought that? Does God only speak at the ninth hour? It would be like three o'clock in the afternoon. So man, if we want to hear God, we got three o'clock in the afternoon. That's, you know, that's the time. No, I don't, I don't think it's that. But Luke painstakingly gives details. And I think it's because he's trying to reveal something to us. The Spirit spoke to Philip and says, go meet an Ethiopian in, verse, or in, in, in chapter 8. And he immediately arose and went to the Ethiopian. He leaves the revival and it says that he responded. Just immediately, he just went. But I want you to look at Acts chapter 10, verse 3 and verse 9. I just want to read these to you. He saw in a vision evidently or clearly about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming to him, saying unto him, Cornelius. Verse 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey, they drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Time frame. Look at verse 23 and 24. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them. And certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the morrow after that, they entered into Caesarea. And Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and his near friends. The servants of Cornelius left his house about three o'clock in the afternoon and arrived at Peter's, he's, Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. At that location, they arrived there around noon the next day. It took them 21 hours. I don't know if they stopped and slept. I don't have a clue. But this was so pressing and so important that upon receiving this vision and the word of the Lord from this angel, Cornelius sends his best servants to go immediately and to get Peter. And he calls to him all of his kinsmen, all of his family. This is vital. He feels like we've got to hear what God, God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. So he, he sends him out. But Peter has little motivation to hurry to this meeting with a Gentile. Can you see it? Peter said, hey guys, I, I mean, I know you left at three o'clock yesterday. I don't believe they probably traveled all the way through the night, but they may have. I know you left there, but I know it's only noon right now. But I think it's probably best that we leave tomorrow. There's clearly an ulterior motive to what Peter is doing because he takes the time to go around and gather to himself character witnesses to go with him before he dares step foot in the house of a Gentile. He waits to set out until the next day. And then the day after that, they arrive at Cornelius' house. The best I can see, it's been now a couple of days that Cornelius, who was so pressed upon by the Spirit of God with urgency to call Peter, he brings his household in to hear what God wants to speak to him, the revelation of Christ. And Peter is bothered by this Gentile. It, 
It's just not something he wants to do. The Spirit of God spoke to Philip and told him to join himself in chapter 8 and verse 29 to the chariot of the eunuch. And Philip ran to the chariot and sat with the eunuch. The mutilated one, the defiled one, the one that is forbidden from going to the temple. He joined himself to the eunuch. Peter finally arrives at the house of Cornelius and he has a little jewel to share with everyone that uh, he would say to them, these people who are so anxious to hear the word of the Lord, Peter would say this in the 28th verse. Do you know how that it is unlawful for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation That's beautiful. I mean, that's just, this is the stuff that Luke's recording because he's trying to help us see Peter had some stuff he had to get worked out of him. These men travel to get him. They're all these people have gathered. They are, we see when he walks into the house, Cornelius falls on his face and begins to worship the man. They are completely receptive. They're hanging on his words and the first words out of his mouth. Do you realize how taboo it is for me to even walk in your house? I mean, literally is like to the point of aggravation. Almost, how dare you call me? But God told me, I'm not trying to make light of this, but I mean, I could just see it. But God told me, and so I'm here. You see, there's some things that really needed to be worked out in his life. Some things that God was trying to deal with. He brings up their uncleanness. Did you catch what else he did? Do you realize how that it is unlawful for a what? A Jew. Oh, hold on. I thought Peter was a Christian. I thought the Lord had been telling these dudes for three years, hey, guess what? This whole thing's going to be ended. We're not living by a law there. You're going to come into a new covenant. But Peter identifies himself now. Ten chapters Into the book of Acts, Peter is still calling himself a Jew. He is trying to hang on to an old law and a new covenant at the same time. He is a devout man. Peter is a sincere man. Peter is a godly man. But this limbo that he is in is ripping him apart. The same word that God tells Philip, kolau, to join yourself, to bond to, to knit together, is the same word that Peter says it is unlawful for him to do. Do you see the contrast? Do you see why God said, listen, I got to get one guy to go down and preach to the eunuch. Now, I got a guy over here who is seeing thousands of people coming to know who I am through his message but he is completely unusable to me because he has a prejudice toward this man. And then I got this guy over here. 
a table waiter, and um, he's a guy I can use because he's sensitive to my spirit and he's hearing my voice. This is why when the servants of Cornelius come to Peter and say, hey, listen, the Lord spoke to our master and, and he said, you need to call for you and you need to come. This is why Peter took time before he ever planned on leaving. He took time to gather himself character witnesses because it is forbidden, because he is still concerned about the law, because he's still trying to live in Jewish covenant and he doesn't, he doesn't still yet understand the grace that has been given. That's why Paul is preaching the gospel of grace. God commissions Paul, a, a, a disciple, an apostle, chosen out of season because Peter doesn't have this message. Peter has a revelation of who Jesus is, but he does not have a message of grace. He does not believe it's for everybody. He believes it's only for the Jews. He is interacting with the Gentiles. He has taken men with him to say, listen here, man, we, were, we had no intentions of eating with any Gentiles, but God told me I had to go. And, and Chris and Dustin and, and, and Isaac and Austin went with me and they can verify this was nothing I wanted to do. Do you understand what's going on here? This is what's happening. Luke is very clearly revealing an obstacle that has hindered the spread of the gospel. There is much sentiment among the apostles that what Jesus did was for the Jews and for the Jews alone. Even those who are becoming Christians... They believe it's that, that they're, they're receiving him as a Messiah, but they don't believe this is to the Gentiles. Maybe, hey, I know the Lord told us to go into Judea, or Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, but what are we going there for? To gather the Jews. What are we coming to Oklahoma for? To get, it, get the Christians to come. No. No, that's not it. God's intention all along for them was not to go out and gather the lost Jews. Yeah, they're going to preach to them too. But that this gospel would be to every tribe, every tongue, and every kindred. This is not a secret, but their minds, they've got some hindrances that are blocking what God is trying to do in their life. They are still identifying as Jews and have not shed the customs of Jews and the laws associated with Judaism they are trying to function in a dualistic system where they live by laws and by grace, by the old system and by the new, by sewing a new cloth on an old garment, and they are trying to pour new wine into old wineskins. What happens to many of these Jews that are being converted at the message of Peter? They're pouring the new wine of the new covenant into an old system. But when that new wine begins to reveal who Christ is, it ruptures the old wineskin. And these same people who are coming to faith are abandoning faith.
or departing from the faith. And this is what Jesus was trying to tell them from the outset. People will say that Peter opened the door to the Gentiles. Has anybody, anybody heard that? Peter opened the door to the Gentiles. Well, I would argue, I think, clearly that Stephen and Philip opened the door to the Gentiles. They were the first to reach out to the Gentiles and proclaim to the nations the gospel, in my opinion. But I would even say further that more than Peter opening the gospel or opening to the Gentiles the gospel, Cornelius opened Peter's eyes to a new world. It was Cornelius who was being used by God to speak to Peter's life far more than it was Peter being used by God to speak to Cornelius' life. Absolutely no question about it. God is dealing with Peter's heart and he can't get it through Peter's heart and he keeps having the same vision. How many times does he have that vision on that rooftop? Three times, and I'm not sure he would have got it then. But some knock comes at the door, and there's a, a call from a Gentile in Caesarea to come down and talk to them about Jesus. And he still doesn't get it. The prejudices that have been so ingrained in the Jewish apostles toward other nations was clearly restricting them from the commission of the Lord to make disciples of all nations. I want you to look at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth, and you, you all know this story, so you can go back and reread it, but just for the sake of time, I'm skipping through it quickly. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Let me give you a time frame by, this, by the, this verse itself. This is not, hey, a couple of days ago when I was sitting in Joppa on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, God began to reveal to me that he is no respecter of persons. That's not really the verb that is being used here. But what is being used here is Peter is... You know... It's just now dawning on me. <laughs> he doesn't even get it the whole time he's coming. And now Cornelius begins to share with him that what, what God is saying and that he's trying to receive from him. And Peter says, you know, <laughs> I, got, I got a funny story to tell you here. It's just now beginning to dawn on me that God... Is no respecter of persons. But to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That he is calling all men unto him. It's really a beautiful thing. I'm beginning to see at this moment. Something that I have not understood. This is where I want to honor Peter. Are you, and this is what, I'll get there in a second, but I want to ask you this question now and I'll ask it to you again. Are you in a position where you are willing 
to allow God to speak to you in such a way that things that have been ingrained in you and things that you think are fine and attitudes and actions and lifestyle and all of these things that you excuse and believe to be okay. Are you in a position where when God speaks to you today that he wants to change some things in you? Are you in a position to say, I perceive that God is trying to change something in me. Or are you in defense of your current position? And we see this happening over and over in the book of Acts. The same issue of circumcision is going to come up for four more chapters. We're not talking about four more days, guys. We're talking about Years and years and years. The account of the book of Acts is probably over a 30-year period. There is a word that I want to pick up on, and I'm wrapping up, that I would encourage you to think about as you read Acts. It is the word kolutas. And the word means hindered. It means to hinder. This is the word that is used by the eunuch when he asks, What prevents me? What hinders me? Peter uses this same word when he asks those who he has brought with him as character witnesses to Cornelius' house, he's not asking Cornelius' family, hey guys, what, why can't Cornelius get baptized? But he is looking to his fellow Jews that have come with him to bear witness about what's happening, and he says to them, is there anything that hinders this man from being baptized. Again, ridiculous to make baptism this point of salvation. It clearly is not. For one, they have already been filled with the Spirit of God, which you cannot do without a salvation process in your life. That was, pastor's the only one who said amen. Y'all better say amen right there. You cannot come to the Lord and speak in tongues, which we are not emphasizing, but this evidence to Peter that what was happening in them was the same thing that happened in, in Acts 2 when he begins to preach this message, Acts 2 and 3, and people are being converted, this exact same encounter. It wasn't so that others could know. It was so that Peter could see that this same God was working by his same spirit in the lives of Gentiles the same as he was in the lives of Jews. But he looks around after this and he asks this question to the men that have come with him. Is there anything that hinders this man from being baptized? they could come up with nothing. While they really were still apprehensive about the whole thought, they could come up with nothing. Chapter 11 gives us a beautiful insight of what Peter already knew was coming, which is why he took men with him. 
Because when he gets back, after having visited a Gentile, the circumcision party, we got the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, well, they had the circumcision party. These are not just Jews. These are Christian Jews. And the circumcision party, which is made up of Christians, contends with him about how dare he eat with Gentiles. This is again why he brought the guys with him to verify what his intentions were and what had happened. And Peter ultimately uses this same word in Acts 11 and 17 where he says, if I did not go and speak to these Gentiles the, the message of Christ, then I would have hindered God. This word is interesting because it is used by Luke more than, I think it's, I, I didn't count, but I would say a handful of times throughout the, the New Testament. But in Luke, I think he uses it personally within the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, way more than anybody else uses it. It's a word that he is drawn to. And I think it's one that we need to consider. Even after these things, after all of this, think about this. We already preached on this, but I want you to fast forward now. Acts 15. And Paul is still dealing with Peter and the issue of the Gentiles. Still dealing with it. He will eat with the people who are uncircumcised until the circumcision party comes around. At which point, he moves away from them and he brings with him others. And they struggle to minister. You think, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why did God use Paul? Paul is the most educated of any of them. If there was someone to preach the gospel to the Jews, should it not have been Paul? He is better trained than any of them. And we've often said, well, God likes to use opposites. That, that's why. No, 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 it's not about that. There is still prejudice. I don't think it has anything to do with God just saying, well, I just want to use Paul over here because... No, because God was able to get through Paul and to speak to him the gospel, the message of his grace that God intended to bring to every nation. He was able to get Paul to preach that. But Peter struggled with this thought, even as a great man, even as a godly man, and it took him some time to overcome this. Paul still has to go to Jerusalem to argue about whether the Jewish law applied to Christians 15 years after he is called to the ministry. This brings us to what I believe is the overriding theme of the book of Acts. Dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God 
and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. The final word in the book of Acts, Luke's final word is akalutas. It is an adverb form of this same word that the, that the eunuch asks, that Peter asks, that he goes and tell, talks to them about. It is this word unhindered. In the adverb form, it would be unhinderedly, which is not easy to say in English, without hindrance. I, I just think it's beautiful, and I don't think it's coincidence that the final word of the book of Acts really is what I believe to be the theme of the book of Acts. He was teaching all things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And who was he teaching it to? Paul was teaching to the Jews. No. Paul was teaching to the Christians. No. To the Romans. No. To the Ephesians. No. To any that would come unto him. This final word without hindrance. Luke gives the culmination of the book of Acts and it is this, that the Spirit of God had triumphed over prejudice, over the racism, over the nationalism and that the gospel was available to the hungry. This is the focus of everything that is written. When you go home and read the book of Acts, when you look at this, I want you to think about it from this perspective from now on. That everything that is chronologued here is all from the perspective of the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the top of all of the prejudice and the nationalism and the preconceived ideas. Even though they were good men and godly men, it was not about them. It was about the fact that there is no end to the advance of his kingdom. That's what this is all about. There is no stopping the advancement of the Spirit of God proclaiming Christ to everybody who is hungry. So I ask you these two questions because the Lord has really been ministering in my heart daily for the last several weeks. I've been thinking about this and I'm going to ask them to you. What is hindering my work in your life? I don't intend this. I'm not trying to insult or convict. That's not, that's not at all my point. I'm not trying to get you to respond emotionally. I want you to think about it. What is hindering? We're, we're, we want to be, be the true church, amen? We want this body to function as the Lord intends his church to function. I believe we are doing that. I believe that every one of you here tonight loves the Lord truly and intently and sincerely. But the Lord's been asking me, what is hindering my work 
in your life. I'm taking it very seriously. As evidenced in the book of Acts, great men, godly men, mighty men, had things that hindered God within them. I don't want to excuse my life because I can look then and see flaws. I've seen this happen so many times. I see the, early, the new charismatic movement is looking back at Peter and looking at Paul and saying, see these imperfections, really what they said, eh, you know, not as important. We can also be ap- apostles and speak apostolically and, and trying to excuse, need to adhere to the doctrines because of the difficulties and the problems within these men. I see the opposite. I see no reason to do that. Because this book was not written by men. This book was penned by the Spirit of God who moved upon men. They weren't perfect men who wrote these words. But the Spirit of God is perfect. He doesn't need perfect people. He'll work with your imperfection. He will fix the problems in you. What in your life is hindering the work of God? Are there things that you refuse to address even though you have encountered them time and time again? Say, well, I just have a different opinion. Pastor got on this this morning. I'm not suggesting for a moment that my words or pastor's words or anybody else who speaks, that our words are perfect and you have to adhere to that's not what I'm trying to say but are there I'm just asking because
where the apostle, I believe it was, he said, pray that the logos of God will run freely. That's unhindered. Unhindered. And so I challenge you with that tonight. I pray that you will think about this and say, Lord, what do you want to move in my life? Because I'm willing. Pastor, why don't you come and close us tonight?